3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pay respect to elders past and present of the Kulin nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. It's November the 1st, Claudia. Can you believe it? It is. Good morning to our listeners. This is your Wednesday breakfast team here, but it's just Pat and Claudia this morning. Yes, it is. I know. I know. It's, it's disappointing. You know, where, where is everyone else, Claudia? What are they doing this morning? Come on, get up, get moving. It's, it's going to be a busy Wednesday, of course. We've got the studio to ourselves. <laughs> now, I told you I had a question for you, Pat. Yes. Did you go trick-or-treating last night? Uh, no, I... I sat at home and, you know, watched some uh, uh, sport and combined my uh, viewing of watching the ABC. They had a very interesting show on last night. I highly recommend it. Zan Rowe hosted uh, Take 5 and they were speaking to um, the famous actor who I've completely forgot about. Um, it was very interesting though. Great music choices and uh, highly recommend to watch the show. Yeah. I think they might speak to the lead singer of Oasis, Noel Gallagher, in a, in a future episode. So highly check that out. Yeah, they've they've had some great people on. Yeah, it's a it's a ripper of a show. So and then I watched um uh the old people's show with, with teenagers. teenagers. So yeah. it's that's a great great little uh show there as well. Really, really just gives a great understanding of how we can help. The elderly, but also help young people get get involved with our our older people. So uh, our show today is going to be a, a ripper, of course. Um, we'll be starting off with a story behind a documentary film exposition tonight at Footscray Community Arts, which shares the multi generational voices of the West Papuan diaspora living in Melbourne or Nam, as our great First Nations people. See it as. Uh, we also will be then looking back at a uh, interview that Sean O'Shaughnessy from Earth Matters had with Felicity Wade. Um, Felicity Wade is a Labor Environmental Action Network and outcomes for native forests as the recent ALP national conference in Brisbane was held. Uh, then Claudia will be speaking to University of Southern Queensland researcher Dr. Rachel Wallace, speaking about lifestyles approach to sustainable fashion. That's super important, Claudia. I'm a, I'm a very much a person who wears too many clothes sometimes. Well, you're going to find out the right number of clothes to wear. Yes, I'm very uh, intrigued by that because what is the right number, Claudia? I want to know. You've got to wait till 10 to 8. Okay, I'll, I'll wait till then. And then uh, after, the, the, after 10 to 8, after our chat there about fashion and how to be sustainable in that space, I'll be uh, speaking to Palestinian playwright and scholar Saman Sawabi regarding the ongoing conflict in Gaza uh, and she was just recently over there, Claudia, so she'll give us a great insight into that whole space as well. Yeah, really looking forward to hearing that one. Okay, and on to headlines. And the Refugee Action Coalition reports instances of refugees in PNG suffering major cutbacks to services and safety, including medical services required for chronically ill patients. Medical services provided by the Pacific International Hospital are now required to be paid for by the refugees. 
but as service providers have failed to pay refugees income allowances, the refugees' lifeline to medical services at the hospital is effectively cut. Transport services that kept refugees safe from robbery and assault has also been cut, meaning refugees leaving their accommodation are at risk. Security at some accommodation blocks have also been cut, leaving refugees vulnerable to attack. Service providers are not answering refugees' calls for help, and the Refugee Action Coalition says the only way refugees will get the services and safety they need is for them to be urgently brought to Australia. A solution to mobile phone coverage issues in emergencies such as bushfires could just be a few steps away, according to the Regional Development Australia Committee. RDA Grampians Chair Stuart Benjamin has for seven years been advocating for a system that would enable people in remote areas to use any mobile network to access data and calls in the event of a declared emergency. Chair Stuart Benjamin says the solution is relatively easy to activate. He told the ABC on Tuesday, We think it's pretty average that in a country as wealthy as Australia, when we have an emergency, if your provider is down, you're completely isolated even though you might be standing next to another provider's tower. Mr Benjamin said while the network sharing idea wouldn't be implemented this fire season, it would be definitely be implemented by the summer of 2024. And the federal government has announced a three-year project to address toxic masculinity on social media. The step has been applauded by experts from Monash University who say it is a positive step in acknowledging the dangerous influence of misogynistic influences such as Andrew Tate on boys and young men. The university refer referred to research on the impacts of Tate's content on boys in Australian schools, that the effects of his messages are being felt by girls and women in classrooms across the country. They said they also know that boys who consume Andrew Tate's content are more likely to have unhealthy views on relationships, a fact that is particularly troubling given the alarming rates of family violence in Australia. The university also said it was important that the approach used by the government to address these concerns was not a short-term, quick-fix response. They hope to see investment in long-term, direct and targeted approaches that draw on best practice and that take a gender-transformative approach to challenge the social norms that negatively affect boys' mental health and emotions. And in sport, Football Australia has announced it will not make a bid to host the 2034 World Cup, effectively shoring the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia will land the rights in the coming days. The governing body FIFA had given a 25-day deadline for confirmed interest and on Tuesday, Football Australia said it had taken all factors into consideration and reached a conclusion not to place a bid for the 2034 competition. Well, and that's all for your headlines. And we'll be back after a short break. I want to break free. Do you want to create safe spaces or become an employer of choice? for LGBTIQA plus communities in Melbourne's North. Pride in the North is proud to present their inaugural summit, Beyond the Rainbow Lanyard, taking place on the 3rd of November in South Morang. Hear from diverse voices and help create change to improve the health and well-being of LGBTIQA plus communities across Melbourne's northern region, from Mitchell Shire to Hume, Whittlesea and Daniel local government areas. For more information and registration, go to www.pracc.com.au forward slash tickets. 
Pride in the North is a 3CR supporter. Have fun on Melbourne Cup Day, but without the cruelty by saying nup to the cup. Join Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses and Ten Fingers on Tuesday, 7th of November for fashions on the field at the Flemington Bowls Club from 11am. Live music, DJs, delicious food, lawn bowls, outlandish dress-ups and human races. Let's celebrate animals, not exploit them. Visit nuptothecup.org for tickets. Help us make the first Tuesday of November a party for the animals. Nup to the Cup is a 3CR supporter. And you're listening to 3CR Breakfast here with Pat and Claudia this first day of November. We're now going to bring you the story behind a documentary film exhibition debuting tonight at Footscray Community Arts. Callan M. Cal, Stories from West Papua, illuminates the little-known history of exiled West Papuan elders residing in Nam through the unique lens of the community's youth. The exhibition features new film works in which six young community members conduct interviews with their chosen elders and is the first film exhibition to tell the stories of the West Papuan community by the community in Nam. Fijian Australian-born artist Yasbel Kirko is one of the lead artists for Callan M. Kel Stories from West Papua. Sen Nau from 3CR's Women on the Line spoke to Yasbel about the project and its evolution. Let's take a listen back now to some of that interview. Hi, my name's Yasbel Kirko. I'm an Australian-born Fijian artist and community worker. My art practice mainly focuses on weaving and communicating Melanesian stories through the arts. Um, And I've just recently dabbled in filmmaking for this project. Yeah, I've been really fortunate to be collaborating with West Papuan sis Cindy Makabori on this project. Me and Cindy, we've been working together in activist spaces for quite some time, um, mostly in Pacific Climate Warriors. Um, And more recently, we've been collaborating on the Free West Papua movement uh, for the past few years. Um, And this project actually initially started in 2021 um, as, I guess, an action to uh, document elders um, in the Melbourne-based West Papuan community. Um, 2021 was the 60th anniversary of the first Morning Star flag raising in Um, in West Papua and we got together with a group of other activists um, to coordinate actions around the country and this idea of documenting elder story came out out of those meetings. Yeah and we wanted to document elder stories uh, because some of the elders here in Melbourne are actually older than the Indonesian state so it was a way of showing I guess just how new I guess Indonesia is and um, you know talking about you know the occupation in West Papua um, yeah and we were inspired by a Guam-based media org called Nikki Kids and Nikki Kids they uh, work with young people to interview elders and they cover a broad range of topics from like culture to like um, indigenous foods to um, you know military in Guam so a really broad range of topics working with young people. And I guess we basically wanted to do a similar thing with um, West Papua and young people here in Melbourne. Back in 2021, Cindy 
uh, was just documenting these stories on her phone. Um, and actually the opportunity came about to do an exhibition with Footscray Community Arts. They were interested in doing a project with the community. Um, and that kind of gave us, I guess, the resources and the ability to upscale the project into this exhibition that um, is opening very, very soon, um, which is really exciting. Um, the title itself, Kal Angam Kal, uh, we kind of went on a process with the community where we uh, hosted um, lots of community meetings throughout the year to prepare the community for the next stages, to get their input. Um, but I guess that process was also about making sure the community had a sense of ownership of the project as well. Um, and something really important we wanted to do was for the title of the exhibition to come from the community. Um, and we, I, I remember the community meeting that we talked about the title so well, like we had lots of kind of round and circle conversations. And then um, we finally came back to uh, Cull, uh, which is, I guess, um, it's a version of deep listening, um, but it actually means conversation. And Among refers to the Amongmay people. So the phrase itself comes from the Amongmay people of the Timika region in um, West Papua. And the language, um, I guess, like, it, it's also, I guess, a subtle reference to the Timika is actually where the Grassberg Freeport mine is in West Papua. It's also a reference to that community. You know, there's lots of human rights abuses and lots of tension in that area. And, um, yeah, I guess it's like a, a centre of, like, the West pa Free West Papua campaign. There was something that you mentioned in your media release about working with film as just a modern form of how mm. you share cultures orally as Melanesian women. Mm. Can you mm. please speak to how, like, your legacies of oral storytelling have informed the process of making this film? Mm. Yeah, totally. I think, like, you know, it, it's not even just that. Like, even, you know, my, my practice itself, like, started with weaving. And weaving, like, I had to sit and learn and dedicate time with it. And um, I think that, you know, even the foundation of doing this work, I can see it in that practice of weaving um, as well. Working with film was really important because I guess it's such an important tool with activism, but we we are oral storytellers. So using this medium, I don't know, the, sto the storytelling really came so naturally. And I think working with young people as well, like I was just so, gosh, like I was so taken away by how um, professional and how easy they could um, interview their elders because um, I guess it does, it is something that sits with us culturally. This is how we share our stories, is working orally. You know, like I, I, I wish that there was more opportunities for Pacific women and Melanesian women to, you know, to work in film because it's, it is um, something I think we're really naturally accustomed to within our cultural practices. And if you've just tuned in, we've been listening to Fijian Australian-born artist Yasbel Kirko, one of the lead artists behind Callan M. Cal, Stories from West Papua, which debuts tonight at Footscray Community Arts. Yasbel has just shared the beginnings of the documentary project involving members of the West Papuan diaspora in Nam. 
Now she tells us about the processes behind the documentary and why the centering of voices and authority of the people involved has been pivotal to its success. So we hosted a series of workshops for the young people at the beginning to, I guess, prepare them for what it was going to be like with filming. I was really impressed by um, the questions and the material that they had come up with and also all the young people, they got to choose the elder that they um, interviewed. And I was so impressed by the ownership they took over, wanting to like research and learn, like, learn more about the elder that they were interviewing. Um, and all of them had relationships with the elders beforehand as well. So um, that helped also. Like it was definitely an artistic choice to like I really wanted there to be a lighting person I really wanted to work with a proper cinematographer and it was definitely an artistic choice because there is a very long history of how Melanesian people have been documented in film and I guess that history it does have like a very uh, ethnographic and anthropological kind of like lens and um, I guess us as Melanesian women stepping into the storytelling role and using this form um, we have to counteract that history. So I really wanted to make sure that what we produced was of very high quality and, like, our young people and our elders just glowed. That was, like, something that was really, really important to me in making this work. There was something that I did notice on your Instagram that community members were diving into their personal archives, like, say, photos, for example. <laughs> um, were public yeah. archives of, like, West Papua history also used in the project? And what was it like to work with archival material, both personal and public? Mm, totally. Well, I, you know, this also links back to, you know, counteracting that history. You know, we need to handle archival material so delicately and with the utmost care. We did use some news footage. Um, from the arrival of the 43 West Papuans. And it, I think that it was used just to frame the conversation. But, you know, we have to think wisely about how we use that kind of footage as well. The personal photographs, I guess they became like a tool to open up conversations between young people and elders. And um, we had asked elders beforehand if they had photos and things that they wanted to talk to. So they kind of came with these stories prepared that they wanted to speak to. Uh, one of the elders we interviewed, she hadn't looked in her personal archives in like years, like 15 years, I think she said. And it was just like, she would never have sat down with her grandchildren to go through uh, her own collections for any other reason apart from, you know, being a part of this project. So she was really grateful to her the opportunity to do that with her grandchildren. So I've just, I was also like thinking of like the, documentaries that have been made mm. about West Papua and I noticed that there were a lot of British filmmakers who mm. had made um, documentaries in West Papua. Mm. Can you tell us like how this your documentary kind of stands apart from what's been made so far? Yeah well our first one that has been made by um, like a West Papuan before um, or, you know, Melanesian women, Pacific women before. So it's really exciting to, I guess, it, it, you know, it changes the positionality of it, you know, completely to move from being like an observer to like being in the first person. It's It was such an honour to work with Cindy because she has watched all these kids grow up their whole lives and she knows them very well. 
the way she works with them was just like so caring. I, I think a goal for this project has been to reclaim. I think there's this long history of Melanesia being represented as like the last on the last frontier or something like that, but it's always positioned with in relation to you know the Western world in like this very you know primitive way. You know the complete opposite is true. This story. It, it really counteracts that long history. And also it's it's a diasporic story as well. And it's a complex diasporic story because a lot of these elders that we interviewed, they live in exile. They're barred from entering Indonesia. So, you know, there's a lot of history that um, goes into that as well. Definitely. And I imagine a lot of, like, thoughtfulness and consideration in um, not just the making of the film but how it will live beyond, I guess, the production of it. Mm, mm. So I guess I wanted to speak to the future life of this project. So who is this documentary for and where would you like to see this going forward? Gosh, I, you know, I really think that just from the experience of doing the workshop program and how other young people were interested in learning about solidarity. So I really hope young people, they want to learn more about um, this, this um, you know, West Papua. I think, you know, it would, I already feel, you know, it was so meaningful when some of the young people were telling their friends at school about the project. For me, that means the project is a success because I think we've cracked the teen market as far as I'm concerned. So at the moment, the project is sitting in an exhibition space at Footscray Community Arts Centre, but we would like to collate it into um, a film. You know, it can be used for to share the story of West Papua yeah, and I think it's also just like a resource for the community as well for however they see fit. So we've worked with the community to make sure that they, you know, have copies of all the material and, you know, they, they can always access me and Cindy to talk about how they feel about the project and how they're represented as well. I hope that's the future, is uh, connecting with the teens, <laughs> the teen market. <laughs> yeah 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 you know like I think you know I I've been it's like an honor to like work on this project you know as a Fijian woman you know I'm not West Papua and you know I'm Melanesian like but I I really want to see them become the storytellers in the future and take over and um I but but to be able to do that they needed to see us do it first you know and they need to feel seen so I'm really hoping um in the future they'll we'll always be here for them you know we'll we'll we will never stop like fighting for the young people in our community but we want them to feel like they can um be the ones um at the front or the ones who are leading the campaigns in the future and that was Fijian, Australian-born artist Yasbel Kirko speaking about Callan M. Cal, Stories from West Papua, debuting tonight at Footscray Community Arts. Yasbel collaborated with West Papuan artist Cindy Makabori to bring this project to life. And the exhibition runs until the 28th of January 2024, so plenty of time to get along with the opening night launch this Saturday, November the 4th, and there will also be a panel discussion with the creatives on November the 16th. For information and tickets, visit footscrayarts.com or follow Callanam Cal on Instagram. We'll put those links on the show notes. And this was only an excerpt from the conversation with Yasbel. So to catch the full interview, you can visit the homepage of Women on the Line 
and the segment was first broadcast on that program on the 30th of October. Women on the Line is produced in the studios of 3CR and airs every morning, um, Monday morning at 8.30am, straight after Monday's breakfast show. And a big thanks to Sengna for conducting the interview and sharing the audio with us. We're going to go to a track now. This is Australia Does Not Exist by Dreaming Now. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Australia does not exist. Australia does not exist. Australia does not exist. To the base, stepped upon sacred sands, didn't recognize there was governance at hand. Laws and conditions not based upon demands. Tribes, clans, and families in line with sacred chants. Songlines, stories, blessing, woman, child, and man. Stars, constellations, formulating plans. Bountiful planes of medicinal plants. Spouse beyond the physical, beating our dance. None of this dreaming, unfolded by chance. But they didn't see this majesty right before their eyes. Liberal us as savages and plotted out the Mars took our star formations to represent their plot. Now realize the natural essence brought into those knots. Busy painting laws to sidestep our rights. Deny our very ways to be brought out of sight, out of mind. Spotted laws this landscape never defined in the previous 60,000 plus years of time. That said, Australia still a scene of crime when they push aside the matters and it's blinded in the blind. What they be selling is men. Australia does not exist. But they keep on trying to tell it. Australia does not exist. Yo, it's straight up illegitimate. Australia does not exist. Yeah, it's all lies, all of it. First, we'll take that land, take it for our own. Those who take a stand will kneel before the throne, kneel before the crown. Hands on the ground, then we'll take all the kids. Hush, don't make a sound, nothing but savages. We'll show them how they're supposed to live, and if they don't assimilate, I guess we'll have to demonstrate our superiority in every single way. And remind them how we've conquered them every single day. And what better way to do this than to give this land a name? Australia, yeah, the great land that was claimed. Man, it ain't gonna work Watch us grow like flowers If we come from the dirt The hurt runs deep Our peep came just to reframe The pictures of the past So my people know where we came from We've been here all along See, Australia don't exist Just another damn man Australia does not exist What they be selling is men Australia does not exist But they keep on trying to tell them Nah, they can't. 
just a charade painting pictures to try paint a new picture to evade the true identity of this land it is built on legislations and false formations without true jurisdiction propagated through mass manipulation of populations and resources genocidal policy enforces mourning blood of our ancestors massacres but still sacred spirit here Breathe in the air, true essence delivered from our mother's womb and hands. This always was, and always will be a land of countless indigenous nations, none of which are called Australia. And you are on 3CR 855 AM. Uh, you can also listen on the Community Radio Plus app. So grab the app and listen to 3CR wherever you, wherever you are. And that was Australia Doesn't Exist by Dreaming Man. We're now going to go to a uh, re- pre-record interview by Earth Matters. Uh, Sean O'Shaughnessy uh, spoke to Felicity Wade uh, from the Labor Environmental Action Network about the outcomes for native forests at the uh, at the previous LAP uh, National Conference in Brisbane. Uh, leading up to the Net Labor's National Conference in Brisbane this year, the Labor Environmental Action Network proposed a motion to end native forest logging. Hundreds of Labor branches endorsed the motion, but Labor government team prevented the motion from getting to the conference floor. I'm your host, Beck Horridge, and today we'll be joined by guest contributor Sean O'Shaughnessy. And, uh, yeah, a lot of passionate people uh, determined to see an end to native forest logging here in Australia. Uh, and uh, determined that the ALP should join the 21st century and join the rest of Australia in, uh, in ending this obscenity. He's a campaigner with the North East Forest Alliance and presenter of Environmental as Anything at River FM, where this piece was first broadcast. The ALP National Conference in Mianjin, Brisbane. Uh, exciting to see such an upswelling of support across the country for the end to native forest logging. This is an inevitable end which will either happen due to a complete collapse of our forests and an end which is chaotic and disruptive to us all or a decision which is made in a timely manner to end this horror in our forests now at a governmental level to make a decision to change the policies and legislation which enables this destruction. On that note, I'm looking forward to speaking to Felicity Wade, who is the national co-convener for the Labor Environment Action Network, and she was in that conference uh, on the floor. She had been working hard to uh, get up the uh, proposed amendment to actually end uh, native forest logging within the ALP conference. 
and a slightly disappointing result from many people that uh, the the actual proposed uh, motion did not go forward and instead there was a, a rather watered down version of that uh, which was available but great work hard work and somewhat thankless work obviously for Felicity but we'll get her to tell us how it was for her so Felicity thank you nice to be here how would you typify the outcomes from the conference because I can tell you there was a fair bit of frustration and disappointment from those who were outside how did it feel from from the inside look um we were we were happy with what happened at conference i mean i think i think as i said from the stage you know every day that native forest logging goes on it sort of is it, it's it's being a little bit deaf it's the party being a little bit deaf to the environmental concern of the members but um, I guess I've walked into that conference with a with a big agenda on land sector generally, the carbon both in our forests, in our you know bushland, so land clearing, uh, logging, as well as the restoration job. We knew that you know logging was the hard bit, as you know, it's been really hard for the party for many many years. Hmm. A fantastic wedge between its two key constituencies. So we always knew it would be a process solution, you know, that we weren't going to get a blanket, we're going to stop native forest logging tomorrow, partly because, you know, there's an argument that the feds don't actually have the power to do that anyway. So we were pretty happy that we're going to get a new national forest policy statement. I guess where we were a little bit grumpy was we would have liked a bit more clarity, a bit more direction about what the process and what the terms of reference for that process might be. Mm. You mentioned the conflict that seems to exist within the ALP between what you call its traditional constituents and, you know, the larger community with the 87% who are committed to an end to native forest logging. I must say, again, that it always puzzles me. In New South Wales, there may be as many as 300 uh, people employed in native forest logging. And I'd like to know how many of them are actually members of the union because I'm, I'm guessing it would be less than 50. That's just a guess. I know there are 30,000 members of the CFMMEU who are in the construction industry. It seems like an absolutely trivial number, especially when we're actually offering a lucrative payout and, and transition into actual permanent positions for these workers. How does that not gel with the CFMMEU uh, and get them on board to actually push for a better future for their workers? Look, I think obviously the union's need to defend their guys, but I think there is a sense in which everyone knows the time is up. We saw what happened with Maryvale in Victoria, how, you know, more than 200 guys lost their jobs, union members lost their jobs on the on that mill and, you know, when Nippon decided to pull reflex paper out of Australia on the basis of that court decision that shut down the native forest logging industry. So I think, you know, people know that the, the time is coming for, for native forest logging, but I think more importantly is just... The history we now have in Australian politics of the conservative right really effectively building culture wars mm. that do, in fact, infect much more broadly than those directly affected. Mm. And, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but, you know, Bob Brown made a real uh, winner of that in 2019 for the destructive regressive forces by turning up in Queensland from Tasmania and telling working-class people how, what, what to do. The impact of that on that election was broader than just, you know, the non-existent workers on the Adani site, but that sense that working communities have seen a whole lot of economic transformation over the last 30 or 40 years, and thanks probably more to neoliberalism than anything else, they know who pays for economic transformation. And so whenever it smells of, you know, there's going to be an industry taken away and there's a sense that the elites are kind of pushing it, it goes very badly politically. And we've got a leader in Dutton who, you know, is looking for the next wedge. Yeah. So so I guess that's why it's important we go through a proper process. We're really pushing for, we think we need a productivity commission inquiry, in fact, mm. on native forest logging, because if you look at the economics, if you look at, you know, what's happening both, 
you know, to the natural capital of those forests, but also even just to how the industry is going and how crap the Australian industry is and how low value the products it's producing are. I think there's a very immediate economic argument about this where we don't have to go anywhere near a culture war, but we have to get those inputs on the table in an open process. And I think, you know, with with that in mind, rather than just letting it just trundle along as it has for the last 31 years since the National Forest Policy Statement was written in 1992, we will get to much better outcomes. Yep. Well, look, you, I mean, you, you, you say you ran fringe events and one of them was on the future of jobs and forestry. What came out of that? Well, that was really interesting. We had the Minister, Tanya Plibersek. We also had Andrew McIntosh, who many of your listeners will know, is the guy who called out the dodgy carbon credits that are flooding the system in, mm. in Australia, uh, you know, in which, you know, there's a fairly robust fight about, about whether they're dodgy or not. But he fundamentally made the point at that fringe event that, you know, if you've got a whole bunch of carbon credits and you want to make them in the most carbon-rich places, you don't stick them out where the, where the, A, where there's low rainfall and B, where there's not much clearing already. And then finally, we also had Dave Coatman, who's the coordinator, the director at the Queensland Conservation Council, really pulling together how that if we can, you know, do this right, the challenge of building the natural capital of both our forests and our bushland and potentially using those markets, those biodiversity and carbon markets, you know, there should be loads of jobs mm-hmm. out of actually looking after the place. What was interesting, though, and, you know, this is always fantastically the fantastic bit about the ALP, mm-hmm. is that a whole bunch of guys had got up at 5 o'clock in the morning who work in the forestry industry in Grafton and come to the conference to make sure that people like us heard the message about their fears mm-hmm. about what happens when, when and if the industry changes. And they were fantastic. They were incredibly respectful. But, you know, it is good for those of us who are pushing for the environmental outcome to be, you know, confronted, you know, look look people in the eye for whom this will have impacts in their lives. Yes, yes, we do have to, uh, you know, bring as many along as we as we need to get this done, don't we? It's like it needs mm. to, they need to be brought on board and, uh, I, you know, like there needs to be an understanding of what their needs are before we can actually provide for them, I suppose. So that's that's great to have that on, on, on the inside. So uh, you had uh, 369 local branches backing uh, a proposed uh, motion to end native forest logging. And was that, was that motion put to the floor? How did that progress? What, what went on? How did that progress? Well, I guess in the end, you know, these things are often talking, let's talk about how sausages are made. <laughs> Needless to say, you know, then especially when Labor is in government, the ministers are incredibly important. And I guess it's also fair to say that not much gets up in the conference unless without ministerial support. So we went into negotiation with the minister and, you know, it was really hard actually, but we were very, very happy we got the commitment that in this term of government, that national forest policy statement would be rewritten I think many of your listeners will remember its sad history. It was 1992, which is, as you know, I said before, 31 years ago, that the National Forest Policy Statement set up the Regional Forest Agreements, yep. which, as we all know, are the things driving extinctions and also now responsible for you know diminishing uh, timber yields. As you know, they've been overcut for so many years and it's never been updated. No one's ever looked at it again. No one's ever considered, you know, what's actually happened to the biodiversity, let alone what the carbon impacts are now that climate change is such an important policy area. So I think, you know, I think people are disappointed that we didn't get the blanket ban. But to my broader point, you know, unless we actually look at this as a whole, look at what it means, actually get the data. I mean, I think that's the other thing. Mm. You know, the data in terms of what's actually available and people actually understanding at a government level is kind of lacking by virtue of lack of policy, the policy rigour to actually have looked at it for all those years. I think once we put all that on the table, it's pretty clear which direction we need to go in. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the facts 
do speak for themselves when you do get them on the table. And that's it's great that you've got this process in train for it actually being put before the, the decision makers now. So that's, uh, you know, obviously appreciate it. And obviously, I guess those 369 uh, branches that backed that uh, uh, that policy, uh, you know, of ending native forest logging will will want to sort of continue to progress that agenda alongside this new forest policy statement or as part of that development of that new policy statement, I would imagine. Well, yeah, I mean, I think we all know people are going to have to keep, we're going to have to be vigilant and we're going to have to keep articulating our concern. And, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not afraid, you know, like I'm not nervous to say that we would have liked more clarity. And so now our job is to actually get those terms of reference and get a robust uh, process in place that is going to fairly deal for all sides of the debate. And, you know, that's, there's still work to be done to get that done. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's a that's a solid promise to update the uh, the national forest policy statement and a commitment from you guys to continue to push for it to be the best it can be. Well, there's a lot of other things that went on in the uh, in the on the conference floor. Uh, you know, land sector industry and land clearing. These are uh, you know really big issues uh, that you've been addressing. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, many of your listeners will know that land clearing in Australia is absolutely horrendous. Government figures from from Queensland and New South Wales show that in the last three years, there's 1.5 million hectares has gone down, which is mm. kind of so mind-boggling. And while the you know while people start saying, oh well, it's dropping, it was still about 350,000 in Queensland last year. Mm. So, you know, we are the only developed country on the planet who is just knocking over bush, uh, primarily for cows. So we we're pretty pleased. We got a commitment at the COP in Glasgow, at the Climate COP in Glasgow, um, COP26. It was what was called the Leader's Declaration on Forests and Land Use, sort yep. of put together and supported by about 140 countries. And I guess the kind of really pointy bit of that is it commits countries to halt and reverse forest loss and uh, forest degradation by 2030. Mm. So that's a pretty explicit. That's mm. not only clearing, but that's also degradation, which very, you know, arguably clearly includes our native forest. Now the platform actually commits Labor to delivery of that through you know, various policy mechanisms and to end deforestation. So we think that's pretty exciting and important. I mean, again, not easy. And thank goodness Minister Plibersek's in the process of reforming the environment laws. Mm. But that's just as important as the logging, really. Mm. Felicity Wade from the Labor Environment Action Network with Sean O'Shaughnessy talking about the outcomes of the ALP National Conference. And you are back on 3CR 855 AM. That was our presenter of Earth Matters, Sean O'Shaughnessy, talking to Felicity Wade from the Labor Environmental Action Network about the outcomes for native forests at the recent LOP National Conference in Brisbane. More than 300 LOP branches have reportedly supported a motion to end native forest logging after the Western Australian and Victorian governments committed to ending native forest logging by the end of the year. Australian Institute research shows voters now want to see those bans extended. Uh, Earth Matters Broadcasting was presented and produced by Sean O'Shaughnessy and Beck Hodridge. We're going to go into a song now called Antsy Pants by Tree Hugger. The flower said I wish I was a tree The tree said I wish I could be 
tree. The cat wished that it was a bee. The turtle wished that it could fly really high into the sky, over rooftops and then dive deep into the sea. And in the sea there is a fish, a fish that has a secret wish, a wish to be a big cactus with a pink flower on it. And in the sea there is a fish, a fish that has a secret wish, a wish to be a big cactus with a pink flower on it. And a flower would be its offering of love to the desert and the desert so dry and lonely that the creatures all appreciate the effort. And the jackalope buddy, je voudrais étranger pour voler dans la And the rattlesnake said, I wish I had hands so I could hug you like a man. And then the cactus said, but don't you understand? My skin is covered with sharp spikes that'll stab you like a thousand knives. A hug would be nice, but hug my flower with your eyes. So the flower said, I wish I was a tree. The tree said, I wish I could be a different kind of tree. The cat wished that it was a bee. The turtle wished that it could fly really high into the sky, over rooftops and then dive deep into the sea. And in the sea there is a fish, a fish that has a secret wish, a wish to be a big cactus with a pink flower on it. A fish that has a secret wish, a wish to be a big cactus with a pink flower on it. And the flower would be its offering of love to the desert. And the desert so dry and lonely that the creatures all appreciate the Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender attracted people, including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax deductible. For more information, visit our website at bi-alliance.org, email info at bi-alliance.org or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. I'm bisexual. Oh, my God. 
a uh, logging operation. Any person found within this coop is offending. Can they please leave? You're allowed no closer than the bridge down the track there. Any person that's found in the coop will be arrested and charged. <laughs> I direct that you all leave now. Gecko's turning 30 and we're having a party. The Goongra Environment Centre has been fighting to protect East Gippsland's forest since 1993 and we want a party with you. There'll be music, performances, food, drink, old friends and new friends. What better way to celebrate the end of native forest logging in Victoria? From December 1st to the 3rd in Goongra, East Gippsland. To find out more, go to gecko.org.au. Gecko, 30 years fighting for forests. Get down to the party. Celebrate with us. A 3CR supporter. new to Melbourne I found a Food Not Bombs flyer on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We I guess rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. I want to break free. Do you want to create safe spaces or become an employer of choice for LGBTIQA plus communities in Melbourne's north? Pride in the North is proud to present their inaugural summit, Beyond the Rainbow Lanyard, taking place on the 3rd of November in South Morang. Hear from diverse voices and help create change to improve the health and well-being of LGBTIQA plus communities across Melbourne's northern region, from Mitchell Shire to Hume, Whittlesea and Banyal local government areas. For more information and registration, go to www.pracc.com.au forward slash tickets. Pride in the North is a 3CR support. I want, I want to and you're listening to 3CR Breakfast, 8.55am on the dial. Now, what feelings do you have when you wear your clothes? And do your clothing choices align with your personal values? These are some of the questions you might ask yourself next time you're in front of the closet wondering what to wear or thinking of buying something new. Dr Rachel Wallace is a researcher at the University of Southern Queensland who has studied the fashion consumption and usage habits of Australians and the impact these habits have on the environment. As Dr Wallace will tell us, getting to net zero will be impossible if we don't shift our consumer habits when buying fashion. But the good news is there are lots of ways we can think and feel differently about the clothes we wear and the values they represent. Dr Wallace joins us now on the line. Good morning. Hi, how are you? Very well, how are you today? 
I'm very well, thanks. I might ask you just to talk up a little bit louder so our listeners can uh, hear you clearly. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry, we haven't got a very good line here today. So before we dive in into the ways Australians can adapt their thinking about clothing and purchase habits, could you give our listeners a snapshot of the overall trends across the world when it comes to fashion consumption and usage? Yeah, sure. We've all heard of fast fashion. And what's happened with that is instead of clothes being made in a couple of collections a year, say, you know, the spring-summer collection and the fall or the autumn-winter collection, um, clothes are now being made all the time in various different um, collections and they're being um, shipped to stores or shipped directly to consumers every week in a lot of cases. And so um, that that it's called fast fashion because it's sped up those cycles of fashion. So instead of going into a store one week and you'll see the, um, the, the collection that's there, you'll now see things that have been... that are you every week and when you go back there's something more for you to purchase and so that and combined with the um, increasing price uh, decreasing prices over the last 20 to 30 years has meant that um, people are buying a lot more clothes we're talking about you know maybe 60 percent more than we bought say 15 years ago and um, and yet prices are down um, so we can afford it and um, and not only are we buying more, we're also tossing more out. So that's that's basically where we're at. We've bought, we're buying a whole lot more than we ever have before, and we're tossing out things that we don't like anymore. So this is a worldwide tr- wide trend, but I was quite astounded to learn that Australia is second only to the United States when it comes to the consumption of fashion, and we are the number one global culprit when it comes to our admissions from fashion yeah it's really quite um disturbing when you see those figures so let's let's unpick that a little bit more um when we're when we say we're the second highest textiles consumers that means that um we're buying that's in measuring in terms of kilograms of textiles used and bought um so Australians typically buy about 27 kilograms of textiles a year. Um, most of that's clothes. And we toss out about 23 kilograms a year. Now, that's different to our um, carbon, carbon lifestyle footprint because that, that uh, second one, that also encompasses things such as um, the shipping and um, the where, where the fabric has been... Um, for example, um, if we grow cotton in Australia, we'll then we don't processing here, so we'll ship it to China for it to be processed, and then it has to be turned into cloth, then it has to be dyed, and then it has to be cut, and then it has to be sewn. And all of these different processes are usually in um, different places, and so the fabric is shipped around. In the case of polyester, it will be um, it's made from oils, fossil fuels, and um, so that. Another whole uh, sustainability sustainability issue there. Um, in Australia too, we we don't have great recycling facilities, and that um, increases our our um, emissions because a lot of our secondhand clothes 
when we dispose of them. We think that we're giving them to an op or a charity, but their volume is just so huge that the op shops can't cope with it. So they're having to ship some of it um, overseas because there are no recycling facilities here. And so that ends up in places like Ghana, where there are huge markets for secondhand clothes, but they can't cope with the volume either because it's just overwhelming. And so they end up... They don't have um, great landfill facilities, and so they're putting clothes just in dumps. And so a lot of our clothes that we think we're donating to the op shops end up in a dump somewhere in Ghana. And this is why we... We've got such a high um, overall carbon footprint in Australia. It's all these issues combining. So that brings me to the question of um, the myths around fashion consumption and where the fashion ends up um, when it's no longer needed. So you've mentioned the misconception that things taken to the op shop are, you know, being upcycled or reused. What are some of the other misconceptions that exist about the work being done in the fashion sustainability space and how does that impact consumer decision making? Yeah, well, I think it's really, it's it's still our best option to um, make sure that our, um, ex- that the life of clothes is being extended. So if we can um, perhaps give things to a friend or if we can alter it so that it suits us to wear longer or if we can mend things in circulation a whole lot longer. If we give good things to op shops, they will be able to sell them in Australia. And there is a huge resurgence of um, people um, shopping at op shops, the stigma that used to be surrounding Nash recently. And so um, people are searching out things and it's, it's much better to keep the things in circulation than to have them sitting in your closet not being used. So don't not give things to the op shop, but also explore your other options like clothes swaps and um, giving to friends. And, and uh, place, uh, there are a few now based um, online where you can sell things online or consignment shops might be available in your area as well. So explore all the different attitude, um, avenues but really, the biggest message is to um, not buy as many because we just the, the earth cannot cope with the volume of clothes that are going through the system at the moment. Um, also, you know, be aware of things like labels that recycled polyester because most re- recycled polyester is actually coming from plastic drink bottles. When you recycle a plastic drink bottle into another plastic drink bottle, you can keep it into a closed loop for a lot. If it's recycled into closed, then it takes it out of that loop and it's then going to be probably tossed uh, after after it's being worn by that one person. So um, don't, don't believe the hype that you hear when you're um, talking about uh, recycled polyester. It's really, it's not... The, um, it's not the answer to sustainability in the way it's done at the moment. Now, you've also talked about uh, eras in the past where Australians have experienced a crisis and they have indeed changed the way they dress and consume fashion to counter the threat of the crisis. Can you 
tell us more about um, your view there? Yeah, you know, we can look at this issue and say, goodness, you know, this is just too hard. I, we, we can't do this. But, you know, if we're back, during World War II, we were... Um, fashions do change because the situation was so dire. Resources had to be redirected into the war effort and into making uniforms for troops and parachutes um, and, you know, for, for so many war-related efforts. And so fashions were... Um, began to be controlled by the government. Now, I'm not advocating for that right now, but um, we can sort of take lessons from this on a personal level and we can say, yeah, you know, if I if I believe that there is a climate crisis and I want to be able to do something for it, then I need to change my behaviour. That will mean that I buy fewer clothes, I wear them longer, I mend them, I might alter them if I if I need to. And overall, that means it will look slightly different. But that's okay, because that means that we're actually living our values. And so we can look at our ourselves and say, I don't need a new dress to go to the dinner next Friday night. I can use this dress, and I'll just dress it up in a different way. Our appearance might change a little bit. We won't be experiencing newness and novelty as much, but we can get that in other ways, such as, you know, reading a book or... Um, exploring a new um, park in our city or something like that. Um, and so if we can develop these ways that, um, you know, in um, the big thing was make do and mend, and this was necessary for winning the war effort. If we can harness those sorts of skills nowadays, then we can um, win this climate crisis and produce some change that will help to keep our planet sustainable for longer. In some ways, it's another example of being mindful um, when we're choosing clothes, wearing clothes, and actually thinking about how we feel and what our needs are, I suppose, emotionally when it comes to wearing clothes because there is so much of fashion that is connected to identity or the expression of oneself. Um, and I suppose if you are in tune with that, you can start to question whether those uh, f feelings or emotional needs are aligned with your values and also the reality of the, the crisis that we're in climate-wise. Yeah, exactly. Because um, we, it basically boils down to two, there are two different types of happiness. There's eudaimonic happiness, which is based on our values, and that's a really deeply felt, deeply experienced, sense of happiness um, that is really about flourishing and So it's not, it, this is in contrast with the second type of happiness, which is hedonic happiness, which is based on pleasure. Um, so hedonic happiness will say, um, if you're search, searching for hedonic happiness, you'll say, oh, great, yeah, I'll love that new dress and I'll, I'll wear it for the um, dinner on Friday night. And you, you get some pleasure out of that. But in the, in the end, it doesn't fulfil you in a deep way over a long period of time. Now, if you're searching for this more fulfilling type of happiness, eudaimonic happiness, then you'll say, OK, I don't need that dress because I don't like the way that um, it's being produced in factories. I don't like the um, carbon emissions that that's going to um, contribute to the world's climate crisis. So I'm going to just wear something that I already have and you'll, you'll actually get a deeper 
fulfil, more, um, more fulfilling type of um, contentment because you can be happy with fewer things and still have a really um, joyful experience of life. You can add some embroidery to it up with a scarf or different jewellery. You can even dye it. People are exploring natural dyes now too. So you can, if you, if you take these two different types of happiness into account, then you can um, talk. You can think in your mind. Okay, like what am I really doing here? Do I just want that momentary flash of pleasure, or do I want to actually experience a deeper, longer-lasting sense of satisfaction with life? I think they're very um, meaningful comments and observations you've made there. To come back to the the wardrobe itself, I've got Pat here in the studio that says he's got far too many clothes. So I promised him that you would tell us the appropriate number of garments that one needs in Australia. I read that uh, in a four-season climate like we have in Australia there is a, a certain number of garments that will basically do the trick. Can you tell us what that magic number is? Yeah, so it's really interesting because you know, back in the um, first half of the 20th century, you know, so um, before, say, 1950, um, people were quite content with wardrobes about around the, you know, 40 garments mark, say, 40 to 50 garments, was considered uh, adequate for a whole Now, our, our wardrobe, um, the studies that have been done on wardrobe sizes are showing that people might have up to 400 garments in a, um, in a typical wardrobe, maybe more, maybe less, but, you know, that that's not unheard of. And that's just huge compared to what people were able to cope with, you know, several decades ago. What we're thinking now is something sort of in the middle. Um, if you're in places like Darwin or Cairns or Northern Australia, where you've got basically a two-season two climate, it's wet and it's wet or it's dry, um, then probably 74 garments are going to be okay. You'll, you'll probably find enough um, out, different outfits in that. We're not talking; we're excluding undergarments in it, by the way. So. That you don't have to count up every pair of knickers you've got in the drawer. If you're in a um, colder climate where you've got four seasons like in Sydney, then 85 pieces, you, those few extra things, like a couple of warm jumpers for this winter, um, a good coat or two, and that should keep you adequately covered. Now, if you go and have a look at how many garments you've got in your wardrobe now, most people will find that they've got more than that. So the thing to do in is to if you've got a, if you've got something in there that you can't ever see yourself wearing again, then donate it, give it away into circulation in some in some other way. Cut it up for rags if you if you um, if it's suitable for that, or put it into circulation so that you don't have to um, then buy rags or if your friend maybe can wear it they don't have to buy another piece of clothing. So if you keep put them into circulation, then um, there'll be more options for other people as well. So about 85 pieces for a four-season climate is what you're aiming for. And it might take a while to get there because if you love everything that's in your wardrobe and you wear it, then don't just give it away because um, 
you think you should, just get the most wear out of it that you possibly can over the next And um, then if if you have um, got down to your 85-piece wardrobe, if you manage to buy, say, 10 or 12 a year, and that doesn't mean brand new, that can mean new to you from a second-hand source, then you can replace your entire wardrobe in about seven years. And that'll give you um, enough um, time to wear clothes out, but without actually getting into that, oh, my goodness, it's falling apart thing. Well, thank you very much um, for sharing that insight with us. Um, and as the the bushfires are blazing up where you are, and uh, also in New South Wales, um, it's yeah, it's yeah. the season that wow. we are most reminded um, of what's happening in the climate. And yeah, it's really important. We've got the spring racing carnival down here, so I'm sure lots of people are looking um, for that thing to wear that is just right. Um, we've got Black Friday coming up later in November. So, yeah, the tips and thoughtful messages that you've shared are, uh, are really important as we, we go into these um, typically fashion-oriented um, occasions uh, to, to stay mindful. Yeah, that's so true. true. These are great opportunities to put these new into action and um, do something for climate crisis on a personal level. Great. Thank you very much. That was University Thanks. of Southern Queensland researcher Dr Rachel Wallace speaking about the lifestyle approach to sustainable fashion and the importance of aligning our values with our consumer choices in order to reach net zero. And I'll just let listeners know that there's an excellent report that came out last year by the Berlin-based Hot or Cool Fashion Hub. Uh, it's called Unfit, Unfair, Unfashionable, Resizing Fashion for a Fair Consumption Space. It's actually fascinating reading and I will put the link to that report on our show notes. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back to talk about the situation in Palestine with an Australian-Palestinian playwright. She said, don't leave me here again, ma. I need you more than you could ever understand, ma. I'm broken and alone. I know we had a broken home. Stop thinking you need a man, ma. Getting chucked around the system. Need to take my hand, ma. Wanna go home. But you're too selfish on that needle Think you bad to the bone Was once good but you turn evil And I'm sick of these thoughts Was I ever enough? It seems that all I was taught But I was always too much And all I want is your love But you don't want to come back Yeah, you're too sick on that crack To comprehend the impact I only see you for an hour Every couple of weeks And I'm going through so much trauma Find it hard to just speak You're touching me in the dark Cause I'm not worthy of love And I'll probably turn out like you Or laying up in a coffin All I wanted was you but I wasn't your problem, I guess I gotta figure out my own ways to just solve them Want you to fight for me, like you fight over drugs Want you to fight for me, go ahead and fight for my love Want you to die for me, but you just died on me So now I'm standing in the mirror feeling real lonely Sorry mummy I'm 
was fronting on your dad And my demons came in masses Was too weak to fight him back Don't blame me for what I did Put blame where it belongs I did bad on my own Having you was never wrong You were a blessing all along Just too blind to fucking see Hating on who I am Please don't ever be like me I should have fought for you And that was Fight For Me by Barker. You're on 3CR, 855 AM. I'm now going to be joined by Palestinian playwright and scholar Samar Sawabi to discuss the ongoing conflict in Gaza currently. Samar, how are we going this morning? I'm going resilient. How are you? Yes, not too bad, not too bad. Um, the news out of this morning, uh, Summer, if you've just heard, um, there's been airstrikes on the Jabala refugee camp. Um, mm-hmm. Firstly, tell me what, what's that situation like uh, currently in Gaza? Oh, currently, uh, there's a lot of people on top of the rubble and inside uh, deep into the crater trying to dig um, uh, for victims and... Uh, if if you could just imagine having people from any ages above 13, any able-bodied person uh, with their bare hands, having to go to these areas to actually be rescue workers and um, and to try to dig body parts and humans from these collapsed buildings. When we have an earthquake in any country around this world, Every country sends people to help, machinery, equipment. Um, but they're in Gaza, forgotten and abandoned by the entire world. Mm. Uh, people are having to do this for themselves with no, I mean, I, I would say with no training, but sadly, they've had so many wars so far. Um, so the scene is chaos. People are looking to see who died, who was killed, who can make it out alive if there's people still stuck under the rubble. I mean, uh, the the size of the, the bombing, six tons of U.S.-made bombs were dropped. There's four large craters. Um, it's, uh, and that's just this morning. Mm, yeah, yeah. To put, it in, to put it in perspective for anybody listening, this is what we woke up to this morning. But the last three weeks, we woke up to similar events every morning. We went to sleep hearing about similar events. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, very sobering uh, hearing it. Um, the UN, you know, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres has said he's deeply alarmed by the t- intensifying conflict in Gaza and the escalating civilian casualties. Um, what, yeah, what? and I mean the the, the UN yeah. the UN is not really coming out as strong as mm. it actually should be, but it hi- highlights just the the uh, the powerlessness of of these international bodies um, that is actually like 
there is one bully on <laughs> on this planet, and it's and it's the U.S. Mm. Um, and Israel, and and uh, you know they're 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 literally wreaking havoc. We know that what they're doing doesn't represent the will of the majority of the people around the world. We've seen the protests, a million people in Copenhagen, uh, half a million in London, uh, here in in in, uh, in Melbourne, thousands and thousands. Uh, you know, some people say thirty, some people say fifty. Um, it's we know where we know that we can see it as genocide. The UN, uh, at a, an official um, speech, is actually really washing down what we're all seeing. Uh, the director of the New York Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights has recently, just uh, yesterday, called it a textbook case of genocide. This is genocide. Mm. There's no other way to look at it. Human rights lawyers. Um, international law experts, they're all saying, this is a genocide. When when you consider that a child is killed every 10 minutes now, mm, mm. a child in Gaza is killed every 10 minutes, don't tell me this is a war about Hamas or Islamists or whatever uh, framing that they want to use. A child is being killed every 10 minutes. Can we just stop and think about that? Yeah, yeah, I've... Uh, yeah, it's it's alarming and very, very uh, sad. Um, uh, you know, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's why I've put the pause to it somewhere because it just it reflects um, how grateful we are in Australia to be in one living in a country of in freedom. And I think many of us don't understand, and even myself don't understand the the extremities that the people of Gaza yeah. have to go through. You were there recently in uh, in early July. Can you just give me an idea of what Gaza is like day to day? So I I went um, in in early July of this year, and it was uh, at a time when it was just rising from the previous war. So Gaza, um, since 2006, actually, it's a very long story. So yes, since yes. 1948, the refugees came, and then in 67, Israel occupied that land. Um, and so the refugees um, not only were displaced and and uh, and uh, uh, kicked out of their homes in what became Israel, they also became subjected to Israel's military occupation in '67. And so since '67, um, things just kept getting worse because Israel has never really been content with the idea of of uh, of just having uh, the 1948 borders. It it's always, and, and the Likud government, especially the Netanyahu government, the Likud government, that is their ideology. They believe that the whole area is for the Jewish people and that the Palestinians need to be removed or killed. Mm. Uh, I mean, these are the choices, expulsion or death. Uh, these were the choices in 1948 when they established the state of Israel. That's the choices they gave the Palestinians. More than 425 villages were wiped off the map. And mm. two-thirds of the Palestinian population were terrorized into leaving their homes. So terror has always been an essential tool for the state of Israel to use in order to expand, to, to uh, arrive at, at the, 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 uh, the demographic majority that it needed to arrive at, because at the time they were not the majority. They needed to get rid of the Palestinians in order to become the majority on the land. This is back in 48. 
We are now in 2023, and this is still happening. Mm. And the last three weeks, it's been happening at a grand scale. And the world is still wondering about whether or not to pass a resolution for a ceasefire and humanitarian aid, not not to stop the genocidal um, policies of Israel, not to stop the ethnic cleansing. People, you know, and, and when they say that, um, you know, we need to ensure that the, the Palestinians, they're pressuring uh, Egypt mm. to take the Palestinians, um, uh, to, to offer the Palestinians a safe place. Why is it that the first go-to option to evacuate people, not to ensure the, their safety in their homes. Why are the Palestinians never, never allowed to entertain the idea that they can remain on their land and be secure at the same time? And when was the last time, I ask you, when was the last time has any world leader stood up and said that the Palestinian people have a right to self-defense? The Palestinian people have a right to protection yeah. Uh, That's never happened. Yeah. That hypocrisy yeah. is mm. astounding. Yeah, definitely, Summer. It's uh, it's interesting. Uh, there was an Irish politician who made a who who made a. I don't know the correct uh, correct me if I'm wrong. There was a video out online with an Irish politician in Parliament, uh, mm-hmm. basically hypocriting the Irish Irish Prime Minister for not um, calling out the uh, conflict in Israel and Palestine and calling out the Israeli atrocities. Um, he kind of labelled it back to the ongoing conflict which is happening in Russia and Ukraine uh, with Vladimir Putin's mm-hmm, uh, decision mm-hmm. to de- declare a what what he called a special military operation or what we call a war uh, on the people of Ukraine and the way that the Western world took offence to that while in this situation it seems to me like, and, uh, and you'll agree with this one Summer, it seems to me like the Western world is more focused on um, helping the Israeli government in in this in this terrible um, abuse of power and and will to to to, um, to, to just in almost in a, in a sense as you said genocide uh, the Palestinian people yeah absolutely and look at the heart of it all uh, and we see it I mean we we go through periods where we as Palestinian Australians or uh, um, as, as Arab Australians or as Muslim Australians, we uh, kind of want to believe that we are included, that this is uh, the world, that you know we are in a, in a country that has embraced us, that we have equal rights. But all it, all it takes is um, for things to happen, like the Iraq War um, and, and what's happening today in Palestine, for us to be reminded that we actually don't matter, mm. that we actually are worth less, and that this is truly, truly uh, still um, a, a white colonialist project uh, in, in the Middle East. You know, when, when, when Albanese says that we share the same values as Israel, as Western nations, we say we share the same values as Israel. On the same day that in Israel, protesters are shouting death to the Arabs. Mm. And settlers are going into Palestinian homes, aiming guns at their heads giving them 24 hours to evacuate or be slaughtered. Mm. I have to ask, what, 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 what does that mean? If you, if you, the head of the country that I'm living in, the representative of the government that, I, that I'm supposed to be able to vote in an election for, if you are saying that you share the same value, where is my protection? Who's going to protect me? 
And I tell you what, yesterday somebody shouted at us in the street, you're all terrorists. I'm, I'm actually genuinely worried because the rhetoric from governments is always, it trickles down and then, and then you know, anti-Palestinian sentiments become, you know, it's a scary thing. I mean, a child was crossing the road the other day with a kufiya and the guy who's supposed to help her cross. This is a, 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 a young girl going to school looked at her coffee and said, I hope all your people die. Uh. This is right here in Melbourne. Mm. And so, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a very racist attitude by the government. It's colonialism at its worst. It's in-your-face genocide. Mm. Um, and it is hard to believe that in this day and age, this can all happen, and our government can think that it's not going to be held to account. It will be held to account. Yeah, it will be held mm, to account. Mm. Uh, Summer, there's been that also that argument of um, also that attitude towards uh, J- Jewish people as well. What do you say to that? Because that, that's the thing that I uh, find with the conjury is that I, I would know most. We saw this, and you'll be well aware. There's most of Israelis were protesting only 12 months ago regarding the the government situation. Uh, in their own, in their own uh, land regarding Benjamin Netanyahu's reappointment mm-hmm. as as Prime Minister of Israel, where, where do you see you stand on that on that type of space? Look, you know that they were protesting, but they weren't protesting the occupation. Um, mm. I think there's a blind spot, and there has been a blind spot on on the progressive Israeli uh, side. Uh, or the, if you can call them progressive <laughs> yes, Zionists. Yes, 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 I understand. I mean, I, <laughs> progressives except on Palestine. Mm. Uh, this blind spot and this inability to face up in their own community has really been part of, of, of the problem of of getting getting past the the, the, the point we're at. Um, when we were when we uh, when we engaged in nonviolent um, movements, and I've been part of these nonviolent, and I'm very proud to have been part of these nonviolent movements, the, the boycott, divestments and sanctions uh, movement especially. Um, it was uh, the uh, the progressive Zionists who, who stood in the way and told us that we shouldn't boycott Israel. Um, and so I think there is, a, there is a, an issue there because they really... And that's not to say that there are not amazing Jewish anti-Zionist groups, uh, solidarity who stood in solidarity with Palestinians, and um, you know we embrace each other at every at every protest, at every function. Uh, I don't think there is a future that uh, I, I don't think we can even imagine a future ahead if it weren't for these um, solidarity networks of Palestinian and Jewish activists who are working together to dismantle Israel's apartheid and to ensure that there is hope uh, uh, for our children uh, in that region and all over the world. I mean, don't think Palestine is just about Palestine. I I always find it a little bit... It it is not. This is about everything. Mm, mm. (laughs) If I can borrow the title, everything, everywhere, all at once. Yes, Yes. I mean, you know, I was just in the U.S. a few months ago. I have never seen poverty like I have in Oakland, California. My heart broke just walking in the street. There is not one uh, green uh, 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 space, you know, where you're supposed to, like, you know, we would take the dog for a walk. There was not one green Mm. space that wasn't, that didn't have 
uh, homeless encampments on it. People yeah, are yeah. hungry. Summer, People I'll have to apologise so for just, cutting one, you off here. One last very yep, quick very point. quickly. When, when, when they're trying to send $100 billion in supplemental funding from the U.S., and they're not taking care of their people, that is a Palestine problem that everybody should be thinking about. That is where we connect. Well spoken there, Summer. Uh, I really appreciate your time. And we're unfortunately run out of time and we could discuss this for much longer uh, in, a, in, a, in a future interview, I hope. Um, but I, I pray that it all, I hope it all settles down in that part of the world. As I said to you on the phone only recently, I'd love to get there. So thanks very much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. So that was our Palestinian-Australian playwright and scholar Samar Sawabi uh, just discussing the ongoing conflict in Israel and Gaza. And that's all for the show uh, for this Wednesday. It's been a very interesting show, but I uh, hope you have a lovely day and uh, enjoy the long weekend. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.